Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is Sarah Ruth Thomas, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. It's that time of the year, folks. It's busy, busy, busy. And if you're like me, you'll need a way to take a break from all the holiday action, traffic, crowds, gatherings, and all the overstimulation they bring. Best Fiends is the perfect pick-me-up, and it's become my new favorite game. As you know from prior episodes brought to you by our friends at Best Fiends, like today's episode, it's a match-three-style puzzle and adventure game with a great story element and new levels being added all the time to keep it fresh and wicked good fun. Best Fiends has things we love here at the Wicked Library. An amazing storyline, your ability to become your own private collector, of fiends, and wickedly challenging puzzles that make you think. And since you're likely going to be traveling or finding yourself in situations with slow or spotty Wi-Fi, you can play Best Fiends whenever and wherever you want with offline mode. I'm sure like me, you'll love the fact that they're adding new content all the time. So there's always a fresh challenge waiting for me when I need to take a break or pass time. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hello and welcome to Season 11 of The Wicked Library. I am Jeanette Andromeda, your guest host for Episode 1105, our Thanksgiving special. You may know me as an artist and storyteller from the dark corners of the internet, perhaps through my blog, HorrorMade.com, my YouTube channel, or you may be familiar with my published illustrations, which include art, for the Wicked Library's own anthology, 13 Wicked Tales. I've personally always been fascinated by horror, and not just because I thought goths had the coolest clothing and Edgar Allan Poe spoke to something deep and moody and emo and delightful in my own soul, (laughs) but also because I think the darkness of horror is the perfect backdrop to allow for the hope and perseverance and the strength inhumanity to shine through. Call me what you will, but I am a sucker for happy endings, especially when the main characters have to go on an epic adventure defying the laws of life and death to get there, and maybe dealing with some ghosts and vampires and things along the way. I really do feel like the shelves of the Wicked Library are where I am the most at home. So to all of our patrons supporting us on Patreon and through our website, thank you. You are the reason these shelves stay lined with stories, and our doors continue to be haunted by such talented creators. And on a more personal note, you are the reason that I've been able to contribute art to the digital walls of this library. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards in return. 
A lot of hard work goes into making this show, and we really do rely on the support you give us to pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're part of making this show possible, you can also get rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary. Now, today's story, The Filling, is by an author new to the Wicked Library, but certainly no stranger to horror. Michael A. Arnzen holds four Bram Stoker Awards and is an International Horror Guild member. And this little story is certain to add a dash of horror seasoning to your celebrations this year. The Filling was written by Michael A. Arnzen, is performed by Graham Rowett, with a custom score composed by Nico Vitesi of We Talk of Dreams. You can learn more about our entire dream. <laughs> our entire dream. Hmm. Well, you know, that kind of works. But you can learn more about our entire team, including myself, on thewickedlibrary.com. Hope you're hungry. Grandma's head wasn't in the oven. This surprised Billy Bacalieri because he had just placed his grandmother's decapitated skull inside the large magic chef range the night before. It seemed a fitting tribute to the woman who had taken care of him for years, always nurturing him with her warm love, always baking him the best of pies to lift his spirits and fill him up with the good things in life. Billy deeply loved his Grandma Bacalieri but she just had to die, because of her curse. Yesterday they were playing gin rummy, and Billy had eaten four whole slices of his favorite dessert, vanilla blueberry pie. Vanilla Mirtillo Torta, she called it, and it was fun for him to try to pronounce, even though he never understood the language. She always served the pie piping hot out of the oven, in a steaming tin full of joy. He loved his grandmother's famously flaky crust, her trick, he'd learned, was blending one part graham crackers together with one part graham cracker cereal. Each slice topped off with one perfect dollop of vanilla-laced whipped cream to cool it down and mellow the flavor. Each bite was heaven. Plump and filled with all of my love, she used to tell him whenever she pulled a fresh tin out of the magic chef range. The smell of blueberries made him drunk with hunger, and he drooled as he savored every bite. But that particular night, Grandma had to die. She just had to. During their gin game, between careful draws from the deck and sidelong glances over her teacup, Grandma explained to Billy what had truly happened to his parents when he was thirteen, and why she'd replaced them as his legal guardian ever since. He'd been told they died in a car wreck just a few miles away, over on Altadena Drive, but between bites of blueberry his grandmother confessed the truth, that she had murdered them. 
They were going to send me to the nursing home like I was some kind of dying dog they wanted to put to sleep. She slurped tea. They even started packing up the Chevy with my belongings. But I wasn't going to leave everything behind. She teared up, gesturing around the kitchen as if the everything she clung to was obvious. So I put a spell on the car to stop it from driving me to the hospital. Just a little spell. I'm sorry I'm such a hothead. I didn't mean no harm. You gotta believe me. The last thing I wanted was for my own children to die from it. But once I give them a Lokia, the power is, poof, out of my control. Billy always thought Grandma's Malokia was nothing more than an endearingly stupid gesture, similar to all those other endearingly stupid old-world mannerisms he'd grown accustomed to over the past three years, like her famous pinch of the cheek whenever he came home from school, or her famous old Italian sayings that she espoused whenever he asked her life's big questions, or the way she'd throw salt over her shoulder when making pasta, just for good luck even if she sprayed him directly in the eyes. As for the Malokia, it was reserved for those rare occasions when she lost control of her anger. She'd hiss out the word, Malokia, like a venomous snake, followed by a raised evil eyebrow and a funky hook-handed arm gesture that made her look like a thalidomide baby shooting craps. Usually this curse was reserved for petty annoyances, like the electric company when the lights went out, the neighborhood mutt when he came sniffing around looking to hump their own dog, Catchy, short for Cacciatore, or some politician talking up war on the news like mass murder was something to be proud of. Billy quickly figured out why she was claiming responsibility for his parents' car accident. Survivor guilt. Pent up over the past three years they'd been living together. He felt sad for them both. Oh, don't blame yourself, Grandma. Everyone knows it was just a car accident. Your silly old curse didn't kill them. She discarded a two of hearts before eyeballing him with seriousness. I know that. Like I said, I cursed the car. The car wrecked on purpose. But their death... Oh, my poor children. Their death was the accidental part. She shivered. And what that tanker did to their bodies when it exploded... It must have been so painful. Ah! She shivered and then reached over and slid her bony hand over Billy's. I'm so sorry, my boy. He brushed her hand off like it was lint on a suit. Come on, quit being silly. You've got nothing to apologize for. Car accidents happen all the time, especially on Altadena Drive. So please, Grandma, let's just play cards. She gripped him again violently squeezing his wrist and spilling three fives from his hand. Billy! She held him until he made eye contact. Billy, I wanted you to know the truth before you got old enough and started thinking about leaving me. Or worse, sending me away to one of those homes. I love you too much. I love this place too much. I love... Billy shook his head and pulled away. You can believe whatever you want, Grandma. But I don't blame you for anything at all. He crossed his arms and glared at her. If anyone's to blame, it's God. She met his eyes with an intense moment, then coyly waved a wrinkled finger. Oh no, you're only cursing yourself when you say such things, Billy boy. He rolled his eyes. Fine, 
he said, leaning forward. If you really believe in all this rigmarole, then prove it to me. Curse the cards. Eh? Billy gestured at his layout of runs and flushes as he tucked the fallen three of a kind back into his hand. Go on, curse the deck. As you can see, I'm winning the game so far, and I've got a good run going too. In fact, I can't lose. So why don't you put your Malokia on the cards? If my luck turns sour and you actually beat me, then maybe I'll believe in your mystical baloney. But if I still win, then I don't ever want to hear about this nonsense ever again. She frowned, pulling a gray monobrow down over her inset eyes like a hairy hat brim. The power of the Malokia is not to be used so... so frivolously. Well, can you think of a better test? She solemnly discarded something from her hand, avoiding the question. Billy took a bite of pie and then tossed his fork down in frustration. Fine. Then... Grandma lifted her chin so high it made the goose flesh on her neck tighten up like brown leather. The white hair on one of her moles sprung up and stood at attention. She peered down her nose with nostrils flaring, stretching an arm in his direction while fingering the air like she was pulling a string. Then she pulled back and violently pointed at the pie plate. Melokia! she shouted chin trembling with each syllable as her curse was cast. Billy tried not to laugh as she slumped down into her chair with exhaustion. Eventually, Grandma caught her breath and then sat up straight. She wiped some blue speckled drool from her bottom lip. You will now see that I speak the truth about the Malokia. You will no longer find my pies so appealing. Right, Billy said laying down his cards with a grin. Maybe you should have put your whammy on the cards instead, because I just got gin. She shrugged. Okay, you win cards, but you lose pie. Billy saluted with his fork and rolled his eyes before taking a victory bite of Grandma Bacalieri's vanilla blueberry pie. And before he even swallowed it, he knew her crazy curse had miraculously worked. His stomach lurched like a piston, and he instantly vomited a lumpy log of foamy blue liquid and flaky crust across the card table. It burned his nose and seared his eyes, and he knocked the chair back as he jumped up and ran to the kitchen sink. He needed water. His head felt aflame, as if he had just barfed up a bucket full of fireballs and habaneros. When he returned... Grandma was dappling a blue spot from her blouse with a moistened napkin. My, my, I didn't expect that. But now do you understand the power of the Malokia? She stopped matting the stain and pleaded with him. Now do you believe what I tell you? It is not a power to be trifled with. He was about to apologize, but then his colon twisted loose in his bowels and it felt like a garden hose had just uncoiled and was rapidly stiffening with water inside his belly. By the time he made it to the toilet, his tube socks were dripping and his Nikes were soiled bright blue. And then he sat there, draining four blueberry pies from his ass into the porcelain bowl, crapping and crying, not only because she'd ruined his lifelong passion for her pie, but also because of what she'd done to his entire life. Even as he purged, he couldn't quite believe it all. Grandma and her stupid, selfish cursing. 
How could she be so petty and vindictive that she killed her own daughter and her husband? His beloved mother and father in that bizarre car accident with a tanker truck three years ago. His clothes were stained ugly. He should have cleaned up. But instead he found himself in the kitchen, staring in horror at all the pie-making implements Grandma had left out from her zealous baking. Measuring cups, a mixing bowl, a rolling pin. All the signs of a happy afternoon of dessert. But now the smell in the room only horrified him, and all her cookware was repulsive. No more pies. No more parents. Due to the motherfucking Malokia. Grandma had to die. She stood next to him, touched his back with that cold, bony hand that had cast the spell. Billy, I'm sorry. He blindly grabbed a tool, and before he knew what he was doing, he had stabbed at her chest with a pie spatula. The flimsy metal bent so far back it grazed his wrist. Billy, no! She lumbered back and stood horrified for a moment, staring down in disbelief at the boy's impotent stabbing against her chest. He didn't care. He stabbed her again and again with the bendy instrument. It felt perfect. He started cackling at the thrill of his goofy revenge, but then his laughter died down as he realized she was staring angrily at him, her eyes ablaze with a fire he'd never seen before, as she gnarled her hand. He couldn't tell if it was an act of self-defense or an attempt to send another Malokia in his direction. A hellish image flashed in his mind, his parents aflame, their bodies boiling in a colorful stew of bone and bodily organs, bubbling in a lava made of their own melted flesh, blood, and diesel fuel. The automotive metal burst open around them like a broken blister of steel. He turned to the nearby table, grabbed a fluted pastry cutter, and slashed a cross-cut pattern right across her neck. Maloga! She cried clasped her gnarled fingers over the checkered wound he'd drawn across her throat. Gouts of dark blood drained between her flinching fingers like runny cherry syrup as she gurgled for air. Billy then brained her with a marble rolling pin. She fell to the floor. Her skull caved in on one side, resembling a bowl filled with hair and purple flesh. To Billy, it even looked like a pie of sorts. A pie like the kind she had tried to rob him of, and something inexplicable compelled Billy to keep going, to straddle her wide belly and keep rolling with the marble pin, putting all his weight into it, collapsing her lumpy skull into a doughy dessert of gore. Even though Catchy was barking like crazy nearby, he took his time with the metal icing blade. It had a serrated edge that worked surprisingly well for a while, but it took a double-handled bread knife to sever all the way through the time-worn grizzle of her elderly spinal cord. Then he preheated the oven to 400 degrees as he cleaned up. He put her pancaked severed head into the oven in tribute and reached out to her flat face to give the fleshy dough one final pinch at a cheek. Then he shut the oven door gently, snuffing the illuminated lamp inside. He turned out the kitchen lights, called Catchy to follow, and went to bed, as if nothing at all had happened. But this morning, Grandma's head wasn't in the oven. In its place was a beautifully baked pie, 
sizzling in a professional porcelain dish. It smelled of warm cherries and crisp vanilla wafers and lazy hot afternoons on the patio. It smelled of guilt and blood and gasoline and grandma. But it was a pastry, not a body part. Somehow, this impossible appearance of a pie disturbed him more than the signs of his murder. Not knowing what to do, he donned an oversized oven mitt and threw the steaming pile into the nearby trash can. It melted the plastic liner at the bottom of the can and stank up the room with a strange funk. He was glad for that, because it covered up the tempting scent of cherry vanilla pie. He spent the rest of the day cleaning up the kitchen in detail. He found traces of Grandma in the silverware drawer, on the light fixtures, and so deep in the spice rack that something scabrous had crusted in the tiny holes at the top of the cinnamon shaker. On a nearby counter, Grandma guts were all over the fruit bowl. Orbs of fresh pears and apples drizzled with blood spatter. Luckily, being an old grandmother, she had stored lots of cleaning supplies in the pantry. And also with luck, she was too old to have any friends left in the neighborhood. They were all living happily in the nursing homes where she should have been placed years ago. No one would notice her absence. But oh, how he longed for her pies. He could still smell the cherries beneath the odor of aerosols and the tinge of melted plastic that still lurked in the air. Even after he took out the garbage with all her body parts in it and incinerated it in the old oil barrel they kept in their backyard for burning twigs and fallen branches, he could still smell that damned pie. Sugary, wet cherries. He stoked the flames and drooled. She baked and sputtered in the can and he couldn't stand the smell of her smoldering flesh, because the black smoke carried an odor like caramelized apples. Billy stirred the fire, eager for his grandmother to disappear on the embers that lifted out to the sky. Burn, Grandma, burn, he uttered to the cinders, trying to ignore the fact that he was drooling with hunger. Later that night, as the buzz of his fury and fear wore off, he lay in bed petting Catchy and contemplating what it was exactly that he had done. He had killed her, true, but perhaps it wasn't so bad after all. Grandma was getting close to the end anyway. He had done her a favor, actually, saving her from an agonizing time in the hospital, bedridden and wheezing, awaiting the glorious release of death. Hell, he had done the world a favor, hadn't he? If she'd killed his parents by being unable to control her powers, how many others had unwittingly lost their lives thanks to her dreaded Malokia? Who else had she robbed of love over the years? Perhaps she'd even took away the grandfather he'd never met. She simply had to die. Grandma Bacaglieri was a loose cannon with her crazy, out-of-control ancient Italian curses. Who knew what else could have happened had she lived to grow even more senile and erratic? A witch with Alzheimer's could be a very dangerous thing. And so what if he would? How did she put it? No longer find her pies so appealing. He wouldn't find her pies anymore, period, because she was out of the picture for good. It was all poetic justice, really. He should sleep soundly and stop worrying about it. But still he wondered if her last Malokia had backfired, or if she'd been aiming it right at him as her last living act. Either way, it would explain his bizarre desire to bake her, he figured. He wasn't a murderer. He just loved pie. And his parents. 
and his newfound freedom from Grandma Bacalieri, and having her kitchen all to himself. The next morning was Monday, and that meant Billy had to go back to school. As he packed his lunch, the house seemed awfully quiet and still. The kitchen was eerily empty. Catchy, normally up at dawn to scavenge for scraps of breakfast sausage, was nowhere to be found. He took this as a good thing, hoping that his life had returned to normal, maybe better than normal, now that he had the whole house to himself. But the smell of pie lingered, and he opened the oven, just to make sure. Another pie was waiting inside. Hot apple and cinnamon scents poured out of the magic chef's door on a pillow of heat, pushing him backwards on his feet. He stumbled forward and slammed the door shut in a panic. After that, he pulled the oven away from the wall and unplugged the appliance. Then he went to school and did his best at pretending to be a normal high school kid all day. But the smell of baked apples had impregnated his clothes, and it drove him mad all day long. What was going on? On Wednesday morning, another pie was waiting for him yet again. A fresh pie inside the unplugged oven. It made absolutely no sense whatsoever, but there it was. And this was the third appearance of pastry this week. He knew Grandma's Malokia was never going to stop torturing him, but maybe, like the loss of his parents, he would eventually get used to it. Besides, it was only dessert, after all. So what if pies kept inexplicably appearing in his oven? Big whoop-de-doo! He picked the pie pan up to put it in the trash, but realized that this particular pastry wasn't hot and wasn't fruity. It was a delicious-looking Boston cream, fat with pudding, drizzled with gooey chocolate and butterscotch syrup, just like Grandma used to make on those rare summer days when baking in the kitchen would turn it into a sauna. Billy loved her Boston creams. He so desperately wanted to eat this pie. After all, aside from school cafeteria gruel, he was basically living off of tortilla chips dipped in ketchup and gallons of flat cola these days. It's a freaking pie, he said to the empty kitchen. Good God, what's so scary about that? It was a different pie, too. A cold one, rather than a piping hot pastry. It looked perfectly edible. But then he remembered the exact words of Grandma's Malokia. You will no longer find my pies so appealing. And then the projectile vomit and carpet bomb attack of diarrhea that followed, along with all that grand matricide. Yet this Boston cream did, in fact, appeal to him. It sat up pert in its tin, all fluffy and scrumptious looking. He took a whiff, and saliva pooled in his mouth and fell over his lips. A droplet landed in the white tuft of fresh whipped cream on top, Perhaps if he took just a spoonful of the filling, this time he could hold it down. Catchy came into the kitchen and climbed up his left leg, begging for attention. He tried to remember if he'd fed him anything that day. And then Billy knew what to do. He scooped his fist into the pie and offered a handful of the chocolatey goodness to Catchy as a test. The dog lapped it up between his jaws so quickly that once he'd finished, he started gnawing angrily on Billy's fingers, hungry for more. Billy feared that maybe the dog would even eat his arm off as a side effect of Grandma's curse, so he dropped the pie pan on the floor and backed away. Catchy licked it clean in 46 seconds. 
He waited all day for the spectacle of canine scatology that was sure to follow. He had prepared a pooper scooper, a can of air freshener, and a bucket of sudsy hot water for the carpet. But nothing ever happened. Catchy continued to be the same old Cacciatore, following him aimlessly around the house, wagging his happy red tongue. So Billy went to school that day, and considered whether these pies that kept appearing out of nowhere every morning could, in fact, be edible after all. He hadn't eaten any of them since Grandma had died, so he wasn't sure. And maybe only the blueberry pies were the ones that were cursed. None of this explained the strange and magical appearance of the pie every day. And for all he knew, her ghost was milling about the kitchen while he slept, rolling the dough and baking them with some kind of spectral heat. But he had no evidence that she was a ghost, and nothing suggested these pies actually posed a threat to him whatsoever, let alone had an unappealing flavor. When he returned from school, he met Catchy at the doorway. The dog didn't bark like he sometimes did at his arrival, but otherwise Catchy seemed normal and healthy and happy. Playful, even. There wasn't any puppy puke anywhere in the house, unless the dog was smart enough to bury it under the growing laundry pile beside his bed. That meant that the pie hadn't killed him, or turned him into a vomiting wolverine or something worse. Billy resolved to try eating whatever pie showed up next, so long as it wasn't vanilla blueberry. In fact, as he poured skunky milk onto a bowl of his favorite graham cracker cereal for dinner that night, he could hardly wait to taste it. He rubbed the crud out of his eyes and went straight to the oven. The new pie was there, just as he expected. Key lime this time. Not his favorite flavor, but among the top five of Grandma's repertoire nonetheless. He filled a glass with tap water and grabbed the cruddy spatula he had tried to stab Grandma with. It hadn't worked on her, but it sliced the hardened lime custard like a hot ribbon through soft butter. He was starving, so he cut the green circle into quadrants and dished himself a crumbly quarter of the entire pie. Billy took a sip of water and swished it around in his cheeks, giving his mind enough time to come up with any last-minute reasons why he shouldn't eat the pie. But instead, his mind only offered him new reasons why he should. He considered again that this might be the result of some kind of granny ghost a revenant whose sole mission was to nurture him with dessert from the afterlife. Maybe such a supernatural sous-chef servitude was her punishment for putting the Maloki on his parents in the first place. She was damned to eternity to spoil her grandchild. That had to explain it. Grandma was dead, and he had killed her, true enough. But that didn't necessarily mean she didn't still love him from somewhere out there in the great pastry kitchen in the sky, or that she was torturing him on purpose. They were family, after all. She loved him. This haunted baking was his gift. Catchy was at his feet, head cocked to one side as if waiting for Billy to toss him the slice of the pie. Instead, Billy grabbed his fork, gently scooped into green mush, and quickly slid the bite into his mouth. It went down smooth and cool as a limeade ice cube. There was no burning sensation, no gut contraction, no revulsion. It felt like it gently rolled down into his stomach and sat there, filling him up with nourishing satisfaction and warm memories of Grandma. Catchy cocked his head to the other side, pleading with his deep brown eyes. Billy ignored him, smacking the grit between his lips. 
The lime was tart as mint toothpaste. This was definitely his grandma's handiwork, the pymanship he had always loved and now terribly, terribly missed. He finished his portion in three bites, took another huge piece, ate it again. Catchy opened his mouth to bark, but only emitted a faint doggy wheeze through his wet nose. Sorry, boy, Billy said, munching. This one's all mine. Catchy wheezed again, and Billy thought it sounded an awful lot like the noise his grandma's throat made when he'd sat on her chest, sawing away, a sickly sucking rasp of air. He took a curious glance down at the dog, who was panting, the pink and black lining of his mouth and gums looking and smelling like a rotten steak in the room's faint light. Panting, but no tongue wagging, no drooling. In fact, Catchy had no tongue anymore at all. The dog rolled his eyes up at Billy with a pained look, as if he had just torn it out. Billy dropped to the floor and held the dog, cutting it gently along the jaw to tease its mouth open again. He pulled it open and peered inside. Only a tiny flap of flesh remained where Catchy's tongue used to be attached. The stub jittered as if wagging his phantom tongue. Billy frowned and cuddled Catchy's head in the crook of his arm. Could the pie have caused this? He wasn't sure, but he knew that Catchy would have a hard time drinking water, eating food, barking, growling, and generally living a normal dog's life without it. Sure, a lack of tongue might have its benefits. Less nasty drool, less doggy breath. But hadn't he heard from his mother once that dogs need their tongues to sweat? Could this inexplicable tongue-ectomy eventually kill the poor pooch? He didn't know what to do except say, poor Catchy, over and over again, petting the full length of the collie's pelt with each utterance. He repeated this incessantly, partly to calm Catchy, partly because he was afraid that if he stopped speaking, the key lime he had swallowed might make his own tongue disappear. Billy barely left his bedroom for the next two days. He only got out of the bed to use the bathroom, and one time didn't even bother. Catchy slept with him, quietly. He was paralyzed by fear, worried that he would lose his tongue or a limb or some other organ for eating the key lime pie, worried that Grandma was still giving him malochias from beyond the grave. After all, if a ghost could bake him pies, a ghost could throw a nutty phantom hand gesture his way and cast a spell too, couldn't it? As Billy rolled around in his bed, he wished his parents could come back like ghosts instead. He missed the way his mom would kiss his forehead at bedtime, both of them knowing he'd grown far too old for such motherly things, but enjoying the moment together anyway. He missed the way she'd cup his head in her hand to make sure he was paying attention when he knew she would only say, I love you, like always. Her voice was more comforting than the words, really. He missed that. Her voice... And his dad's, too. His father had a deep voice, and you wouldn't know he was Grandma's son because he didn't sound Italian at all. In fact, he sounded like Billy thought all Americans sounded. That is, like a TV news anchor. And his father had expressions no one else did that he knew. Dad would call him Old Sport, even though he wasn't really in any sports, and it sounded so old-fashioned. He pronounced pasta names the way the kids at school did saying spaghetti like it was a little girl's name instead of spaghetti, the way Grandma would bark it out in old-school Italian. 
Billy wondered if his father was just overcompensating for his grandmother's immigration status. He also wondered if Grandma secretly hated his dad for rejecting his heritage. Maybe she'd killed him on purpose with her malokia after all. It was impossible to know. All he knew now was that both of his parents had died painfully in that fatal car wreck a few years earlier. A pair of broken bodies, they bled and boiled alive while gasping for help in the hell of their crumpled front seat. Billy could see this conflagration perfectly in his mind, a nightmare that tormented him, his mother crying a raspy, I love you, in a billow of smoke, and his father opening his mouth to say the same right back, but only managing to burp out an oily ball of flame that caught hold of their hair and consumed them whole. All of it, Grandma's fault. She deserved what he did to her. It had been three days when he decided to get out of bed and face his fate. In the oven, a baker's dozen of pies awaited. He quickly did a calendar count. More pies were piled in there than should have been, despite his neglect. They were multiplying. Things were getting worse. He thought about just packing up and leaving the house for good. Just leave it all behind and let the pie pans pile up till they spilled right out of the chimney. He didn't care. But he had been in his bedroom for days, and he was just so hungry. Before he knew what he was doing, he crouched down before the magic chef and grabbed the nearest tin. He ate and ate and prayed for the ending to come swiftly. The differences between the lemon meringue and chocolate custard and cherry filling became entirely meaningless in his mouth. Even the dreaded vanilla blueberry was waiting for him in the oven, its pie-hole hissing flavor like a venomous serpent. He ate it with obsessive abandon, along with the rest of them, scooping with hands into the hot muck until sticky paste slathered his entire face and arms. He burned his hands, but he didn't give a damn. He just consumed pie, fresh pie, over and over again until the pans were all emptied and he was more than full. He watched TV and burped for an hour straight, head swimmy with sugar. Even the glaze over his eyes felt fruity with syrup. He wondered if this was what Grandma had wanted all along. Later, dizzy, the aftertaste got to him. He needed some water. When he entered the kitchen, he saw that another batch of pies had been set out for him, steaming on every countertop, cooling on every windowsill. The kitchen was like a military bakery on inspection day. He carried an armload of them to the card table where Grandma had cursed him, along with a huge soup ladle, and Billy continued to feed. It would be a slow suicide, but an awfully tasty way to go. Hours passed. At one point he found himself physically unable to swallow. It was as though he had filled his gullet all the way up with pie, stomach crammed tight and brimming with pie filling heaped all the way up to his voice box. His esophagus was like a pie sausage, and he couldn't breathe without feeling the fruity muck bubbling in his lungs. He could hear it squishing around in his body like damp clay. He was that full, and he wondered if perhaps Grandma had somehow reached deep inside his body and pinched into his guts like she used to painfully pinch his cheeks, removing his intestines by tying his stomach off somewhere inside like a clown twists the mouthpiece on a party balloon. He would have stuck his finger down his throat to try to vomit, but he felt faint, 
splashing face-first into an unfinished pie, like something out of a bad, silent comedy. He woke before dawn and blinked crust from his eyes. Literally. Dried flakes of it fell from his lashes like dirt from a zombie's eye sockets. He licked his lips, feeling less full now, but still a little sick from the overdose of pastry. Mildly happy to have survived. He licked his lips, tongue tangy with old blueberry and morning plaque. Tongue still there. Belly less full. The pies apparently weren't cursed, or at least weren't going to kill him. But something still wasn't right. Something else. He licked his lips again. The flavor. He sat up, suddenly energized, as though he were a robot toy who just had his batteries replaced. The pies were all Grandma's recipe, all filled with the goodness and love that he'd always enjoyed. But it now dawned on him that he could actually improve upon her recipes. More than that, he suddenly understood how he could do it. His insane pie-eating binge had taught him much. He smiled at the realization that he had unwittingly been studying and researching the business of pastry-making all along. The vanilla blueberry could use a dash of lime juice to highlight the contrast between tartness and warmth. The apple-cherry chunk could be even better with a few tiny pineapple shavings hidden in the mix, like sparkles of sour surprise. Perhaps a crisped rice shell would make the Black Forest chocolate pie even more crunchy and fulfilling. Eager to taste his newfound palate, Billy went into the kitchen. He fondled the tools he had used to kill his grandma and set them out like instruments on a surgeon's table, just as she used to do. He searched the shelves for her time-weathered cookbook. He surveyed the well-stocked pantry for ingredients and supplies. He loaded up and brainstormed. He could do this. In the early morning darkness, he moved to preheat the oven, but found it was already warm. A smile pulled itself up on his cheeks, and tears rolled over them. A few weeks later, there was a knock on the door. Billy answered it, wiping a soiled pastry cutter on Grandma's apron, which he wore like a bathrobe around his filthy, naked body. A man and woman stood before him in the sunlight, dressed in fancy clothes like his parents might wear for Sunday church, and so Billy presumed they might actually be his mom and dad, returned as ghosts to collect their son. If they wanted to take him to heaven with them, he would willingly go. William Bacalieri? the man asked, flashing an ID card in a leather flip wallet. The man sounded more like a principal from the school he'd been ignoring for days, and the shock of hearing his full first name uttered by a stranger in his own house upset him deep in the guts. Um, he distractedly tied back his apron. I guess? We're from social services, the woman beside him said, taking charge as she moved forward, sticking her foot inside the jam to prevent him from shutting them out. We're here to speak with your grandmother. Her eyes darted around the living room, and Billy could see her nose crinkling. Is she home? Yes, he said, moving aside to allow them entrance. We're baking. Miss Pacalieri, the woman called, making her way into the dining room, which led to the kitchen. The man stood between Billy and the front door. Billy stared at him, expecting the man to call him Old Sport, because he still looked a little bit like his dad did in his Sunday best. The lady that was with him was still searching. Miss Pacal... Oh my God, 
Suddenly the man was across the living room and gripping Billy by the shoulder to hold him in place. Charlie, the kitchen, get in here. Come on, the man named Charlie said, ushering Billy along with him. He smelled like his father's cologne. Billy gripped his pastry cutter tightly as they walked. In the corner by the stove, Ketchy rotted. Flies buzzed around the maggoty body, whose fur had partially sloughed off the bone like an oversized winter coat. In front of the dog's skeletal sneer, a dented pie tin sat like a dog dish. Around the kitchen, every horizontal surface was littered with pies. These, too, had attracted so many flies that the kitchen was clouded with them. The insectoid buzz was as loud as radio static. What? Billy asked when he saw the look on the social workers' faces. Charlie slid the pie cutter out of Billy's hand. The woman pinched her nose. Where on earth is your grandmother, Billy? She's right there. The lady furrowed her brow. We were making pies together before you got here. I'm learning quite a bit. She's been teaching me all sorts of things. She's homeschooling me now, and I'm her apprentice chef. Billy's voice took on his grandma's Italian accent. She calls it her own little agulinary school. Charlie and the woman shook their heads in unison, leading Billy slowly out of the room. He protested, But come and try our pies. They're hot right out of the oven. You want a slice? Please. Come on and try just a taste of my blueberry then. No. They led him through the dining room and tugged him toward the door. The woman batted away at the flies. Billy struggled against Charlie's tightening grip. What are you doing? I don't want to go to school. Grandma will teach me everything I need to know. They ignored his protests, dragging him to their sedan and violently shoving him into the back seat. The clunking noise of the automatic locks shunted on both sides of him as Billy, still naked behind his apron, scrabbled on the hot black leather. The woman slid into the passenger seat and twisted back to fix him with her beady eyes. As Charlie opened his door, she kept her eyes on Billy, but turned her face to the right to say with her mouth, You want to search the rest of the house for the old lady? Nah. The man sat down and pulled out a cell phone. Not in my job description. Whether she's alive or not, I'm calling downtown. Let them figure it out. The woman twisted on the front seat, and her features seemed to soften a little. You okay, Billy? It's hot, he said, his gonads sizzling on leather. Charlie rudely started the car, but was kind enough to point an air vent his way. Billy teased with his apron strings, pulling his eyes away from the woman to look at his house, his home, his... They were taking him away from his kitchen, his family, catchy, his pies, everything he ever had, everything he ever could be. His stomach growled. He already felt empty. The woman smiled when she heard his gurgling gut. We'll feed you soon, I promise, she said. It's hot as an oven in here, Billy said, suddenly appreciating the woman's smile. He could smell her perfume and it reminded him of berries. "'What's your name?' he asked. "'Maria Ricci.' She nodded like they were shaking hands. Billy scooted forward and leaned over the seat in front of him, getting up close to the social workers and feeling the cool air on his forehead. His apron felt dimly like a dress. The woman cocked her head to one side, curious what he was thinking. "'That an Italian name?' he asked. The car accelerated as if Charlie wanted them to quit with the small talk. 
He stared at the dashboard. Billy saw the familiar Chevron logo for Chevrolet, and dimly wondered if that word was Italian, too. Where are you taking me, Maria? The man and woman exchanged glances, and then the woman chose to answer him. We're taking you to a better place until we can sort all this out. I want to go home, he said, feeling anger surge in his belly. There's no better place than my own house. You can't just drag me out of my home like a dog and take me to the kennel. Charlie and Maria exchanged worried looks. Charlie just shrugged. Maria sighed sadly as Charlie scrutinized him in the rear view. He said, We're taking you away for a while, Billy. It'll be nice. You'll see. She pulled her lips down in a gesture that somehow reminded Billy of his mother's mouth. Home is where the heart is. You might not go to the same house, but we're taking you to a better home. You'll see. He dimly noticed they'd turned onto Altadena Drive. Where is this new home? Pasadena, Charlie said tersely, as if trying to shut them both up with a word. Pasadena? Really? He pointed a blueberry-stained hand toward the Chevron logo on the dashboard. He curled his fingers and raised his eyebrow boldly. Are you sure? His left eye flared and felt as hot as a tart cherry boiling beneath the crust of a pie. A hiss came out of his mouth in a voice that was not quite his own. Are you sure we're not going to... Malokia? Thank you so much for listening to episode 1105. Today's author was Michael A. Arnzen with his story, The Filling, told by Graham Rowett. To find out more about today's author and voice actor, please visit thewickedlibrary.com to check out their bio pages. I am Jeanette Andromeda, your art director, executive producer, and the creator for today's episode art, uh, all here at the Wicked Library. You can find me at Jeanette Andromy on Twitter or at Jeanette Andromeda on Instagram, where you can find all of the random things that I am currently up to. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett RLG. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitesi of We Talk of Dreams. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios. All rights reserved. Happy Thanksgiving! All right. Take two. Of my closeted adventures of being a goth lesbian. <laughs> I guess that's uncloseted <laughs> adventures. Oh dear. <laughs> I'm just recording in a closet right now because that seems like the best way to do this. Because <laughs> I live in Providence and there's lots of noise. <laughs>